Well, good morning, church. Good morning and good morning at the same time. I am glad that you're here. Welcome. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. So honored and glad that you would spend some of your Sunday morning with us. Our lead pastor, Justin, is uh, away with his family, enjoying a little bit of time off. So uh, I get the great honor of sharing God's word with you this morning. He'll be back next week, and so looking forward to that. I want to take a moment and welcome our other campuses, so Bridgeport and Hartford, Middletown. We welcome you um, for, yeah, let's say hello, a little good morning to them who are with us right now. I'm glad you guys are here. Middletown moved into their new home last week, which we are almost done renovating. It's a bit of a construction zone still, but really excited about that. Just excited to see all that God is doing. Our North Haven uh, campus is moving, and and we're started work there, and so really excited for all that God is doing, all right? Over the last six weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Us, and if you've been here, you know that we've been walking through some of the various things that we call distinctives that make us who we are. Okay? What are the things that, that define City Church as a people and as a tribe? What makes us unique? What are the things that God has called us to? And so we've been walking through these distinctives. If you've missed any of them, please go back and check them out. Things like Married to the Message, where leaders serve first. We're people who contend for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth. We're pioneering new ground. All these different things that make us who we are. Just encourage you, if you've missed any of those, to go back and get them. All right? Our text this morning, if you've got your Bibles with us, is 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 19. All right, if you've got your Bibles, you can head there. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Our seventh and final distinctive that we'll be exploring together is we enjoy the ride. We enjoy the ride. Let's pray. So God, once more, we come before you asking that you would speak to each and every one of us this morning. God, we believe that you have something to say. We believe that your word speaks every single time we open it. And so right now, God, we throw ourselves before you saying we're here and we're listening. So come and speak this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it was May of 2006, and I found myself wearing a ridiculous square-shaped hat, all right? I walked across the stage, Western New England University, and the dean of engineering handed me what was the most expensive piece of paper that I've ever held, all right? It was my diploma. And that diploma was in industrial engineering, and uh, given that I stand before you this morning a pastor and not an engineer, uh, that expensive, ridiculously expensive piece of paper is worth about as much as the paper it's printed on. But that piece of paper, I'm so grateful for it, because it got me my first job. My wife and I were ready for a new adventure, and so we moved down to New Haven, Connecticut, where we didn't know anyone, and uh, started just a new life down here, which through a various series of events has led me to today. And so though I wish that paper didn't cost so much, college grads, hearty amen, maybe your parents too, hearty amen, Um, though I wish it didn't cost so much, I'm grateful for it because of where it has led me. And I'll never forget that job. I got down here in New Haven, I was a a kid, 22 years old, and I remember 
Part of my role was that I'd walk around the factory floor and, and there was a, just an army of people who were always making parts that this company made. And, and so I'd walk around and check in on how everyone was doing. And so every single morning, I, I remember this one woman in particular. Her name was Mary. And, and I'd walk over next to her every morning. And I'd say, Mary, how you doing? And she's just without a breath. She'd just look at, at me and just go, oh, I'm blessed. And every single time, there was a part of me that went, really? Are, are you? See, Mary had been working at this company for like 30 years. She was well into her 60s at this point with no plans of retiring. She, she couldn't afford to. Mary lived in a, a little place um, in sort of a rough neighborhood and was barely trying to make ends meet. And yet every single time I asked her how she was doing, she said the same three words, Oh, I'm blessed. And what I realized in that moment is that Mary was carrying something that at that point in my life I had never learned to tap into. It was evident through talking with her that there was this, this deep satisfaction in her soul that I knew nothing about. We'd sit and talk, and she'd tell me about her weekend, and with, with a big smile on her face, she'd describe spending time with her grandkids or the various things that she'd done over the weekend. And it was so incredibly evident to every single person that knew her that Mary lived a deeply satisfied, content life. See, for me, I seemed to always be more worried about the things that, that I needed to get or the things that I already had, about that thing that I wanted to buy that was finally going to make life just right. I seemed to always be worrying about what might happen one time down the road. And this is pretty common for us as a culture. Maybe you can see some of this in yourself. Why is it that we seem to have more things than we've ever had before and we seem to be less happy and content than ever? We find ourselves working more hours than we've ever worked before and enjoying the things that we say we're working for less than we ever have before. Maybe you can see this in your own life. i got a friend of mine. He and his wife work two really high-powered jobs. They live in a big house. They drive really nice cars. And when I sit down and talk with them, I realized one time, about a year ago, he hadn't been on a vacation in 10 years. And I told him, and I asked him, name. Why, why aren't you going on vacation? And eventually we kept kind of peeling back the layers. And he said, you know what? I'm just scared. I'm just scared that if I go away and they realize that things go okay without me, that I'll come back and they'll realize that they don't need me. And I'll lose my job. If I'm honest, I carry this level of stress and fear with me sort of all the time. It's why I have to work at night. It's why I can't come home and enjoy my family without needing to check my email every 30 minutes. It's why I, I, I have a hard time just resting and being still. And so, Mike, if you're going to talk about a life enjoying it, I'm not entirely sure how to do that. Maybe for you, you're scared of, of moments of quiet. We talk a lot here about spending daily time with God, and there's a part of you that, that is nervous about doing that and doesn't really like it because every time you sit down and the noise begins to subside, there are these fears and these worries, stresses about what might be and what might happen tomorrow that keep you from actually enjoying that moment to any degree at all. If we're honest this morning, many of us, um, we talk about this, this thought of enjoying the ride, of enjoying life, and many of us feel like, man, I'm just trying to survive it. You talk about enjoying it, I'm just trying to get through it. If you knew the level of, of just chaos and busyness and stress and anxiety that are in my life right now, you would understand why I'm not enjoying anything at all. What are we missing? What are we missing? The truth is, this isn't a new problem. 
Even when God was leading the people of Israel, he knew this was a problem. God instituted seven different festivals and celebrations that were throughout the year, along with a weekly Sabbath, along with a monthly celebration, all for the purpose of getting the people of Israel to stop and slow down. And during these festivals, they would tell stories of his goodness and his faithfulness. It's not just a 21st century problem. It seems to be a human nature problem. And you couple with that this this thing inside of us that that we tend to be negative, don't we? As people, we just tend to always be negative. I see this in us. Us New Englanders, we find a reason to complain about every single season. All right? Springtime, it rains too much. Summer, it gets way too hot. Fall, I got to rake up all those dead leaves on my ground. And don't even talk to me about winter. It's cold and it's dark. We find a reason to complain about everything. It's why we sit before our boss and he can tell us how great of a job we're doing. And yet the one thing that he asks us to improve on is the one thing we keep replaying in our head and self-justifying. We see this in kids as well. One author says that children need 40 words of praise for every one word of correction. And you combine those two things. The stress and worries of of our lives questions of what if. You combine that with our propensity to see the glass half full, and it almost feels like it's too much to bear. So what do we do with that? I mean, picture with me the freedom that you would feel if eventually all that noise and craziness and chaos begin to subside, and you could just rest be quiet and actually look around and for a moment stop asking all the big questions stop worrying about what might be and instead press into what God has in this life that he's called you to to reflect for even just a few moments on the goodness and mercy and faithfulness of God can you imagine just the weight that would lift off of you if you're able to do that not just once but regularly Paul wants to help us unlock some of this this morning. They're big questions, but Paul, um, in writing this text, is writing to a group of people who are extremely wealthy. And yet, in this, he's giving us a new framework for how we're meant to see life. And so first, he, he writes this, and he says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. Now, we have a thing inside of us that we never think we're the rich people that we're being talked to, okay? But suffice to say, we're always comparing up. There's always somebody more wealthy to us. Suffice to say, if you're sitting in this room, chances are you are one of the wealthy that Paul is writing to. Did you know if you make $30,000, you are in the top 3% of the world's most wealthy people? And so I think if you're in the top 3%, you're probably one of the rich people that Paul is talking to this morning. So... Suffice to say, he's talking to most of us in this room, all right? So he says this. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. And what's true back then, Paul knows, is still true today. That for those of us who have a lot, who have more than we need, there's a propensity inside each of us to think, I don't need God. I remember sitting with this woman in Rwanda, telling her about America, and she said, how do you have a relationship with God? You don't need him for anything. 
I remember being so struck by that because it's such a common problem for us, is that when I have everything I'm provided for, why do I need God? The problem is the human heart is always looking for a place to anchor itself. Life is always throwing these these cosmic-sized questions at us that we have to answer. Questions like, do I matter? Do I add any value to the world around me? Do Do I matter to anyone in my life? Questions we're forced to wrestle with, like, what if I lose everything tomorrow? What if something happens tomorrow? We can't escape these questions, and so the heart begins just looking for somewhere to just anchor itself. And the same thing that was true back then is true today, that there are two main places that the heart tends to run to when you don't need God. The first is self. The first is self. So you you ask the question, do I matter? Well, what do we tend to do? Well, we tend to try and figure out if I matter at work. And so I work a little more and I try and get the higher job because if I'm doing really well, then certainly I matter there. And so when I ask the question, do I have value? Where do I find my identity? I immediately think to work and I think of yes because of who I am in this company. The problem is the jobs are always fleeting and so I'm stuck wondering if one day I'm going to lose that job. Some of us have a family, and the way that we lead or run the house is where we find our identity. So we're forced to ask the question, do I matter? And we think, yes, I'm a mom. I matter to my kids. And the problem is, one day the kids move out. And if your identity is built on being a mom first, everything begins to crumble when you're no longer playing the role of mom in the way that you once were. Or worse yet, you build your life on, on this, these jobs or these things where we're accumulating more and more value and, and power. And eventually you get to the top only to realize that's all there is. And so we're not building ourselves, we're not building our identity. Maybe we begin to put our, our, our hope and our trust in our stuff. And that's what Paul moves on to when he says, he says this. He says, what does Paul say? What does Paul say? Or on the uncertainty of riches. Okay, so as I'm, I'm beginning to answer those questions in myself, there's a propensity as well to say, how do I know tomorrow's going to be okay? Well, I'm going to save a lot. I'm going to have a giant 401k. So even if things fall apart, I'm going to be okay. The problem is we're just one economy downturn from the whole thing falling apart. Building our life on the security of stuff is like building a house on a fault line. You wait long enough and begin, eventually the ground begins to tremble and shake. And things come crashing to the ground and start falling off the shelves. And so the thing that Paul wants to wrestle with is that these big questions never stop coming. These questions of security, these questions of, of worth and of value and hope, they never, ever stop coming. And that's why he starts here. It's almost as Paul knows that if we don't get this right, we can never get to the higher things he wants to call us to. Because truthfully, when we begin to build our lives on, on self or on stuff or whatever this is, there's no rest there. There's no contentment there. Because we're always asking the what if. And so Paul just wants to tell us, before I tell you anything else, that's not gonna work. Alright? It's not gonna work. It's gonna rob you of the joy of this life that God has called you to. And so he lays this foundation for us, all right? So finally, he gives us the alternative. In three short words, 
Paul reveals to us a whole new reality where he says, but on God. Paul knows that there's one single foundation that is strong enough to build your life on. The man, God, Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross on our behalf, he carried our sin there. The scriptures tell us he was was killed and buried, three days later rose from the dead in order that he could take our sin on that cross and then give us new life. That in this incredible exchange, Paul would take our, that Jesus would take our sin and give us his righteousness. So that when we stand before God, God doesn't see us in our junk and in our sin. Instead, he sees us with the beautiful, dazzling, clean, white, righteous clothes of Jesus. And so we take these, these big questions that we're forced to wrestle with. Do I matter? Is everything going to be okay? What about my fears? What about my worries? And I answer them in one place. The cross. See, in the cross, we find the answer of, do I matter? And Jesus looks down from the cross with arms wide, saying, of course you matter. I gave up everything to show you how much you matter. Yeah, but God, is everything going to be okay? What if, and he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You say, God, I'm worried about tomorrow. And he says, stay by my side. I will take care of you. And until we begin to find the answers to these questions, we never get to go to the next place. Because our souls can never find rest. It's true for me. Maybe it's true for you. When I can't rest, I can't enjoy. I never experience the joy that God has for me when something inside of me is just churning. And so Paul is saying, rest. As you've done so. As you've put your hope and your trust in God. Now you begin to cultivate a life that chases hard after the things of God and yet enjoys the ride along the way. How can that be? With this new framework that he wants to lay for us this morning, he's showing us. What do I then do? Okay, Mike, so you tell me to put my foundation in, in Jesus. Okay, you're telling me that he's the one that I'm meant to build a life on. What do I actually do with this life? How do I handle the fact that there, there are things and I've got to spend money on things and I've got time that I've got to allot to different things. I've got people that I want to invest in. I've got a family to care for. How do I view those things in such a way that I'm going hard after God and yet enjoying the ride along the way? He tells us this. He says, but on God, which you just looked at, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Mike, you think God really cares about what I enjoy? I mean, I think he's more like a taskmaster who's kind of up in heaven, just looking down the moment I get out of line, he's ready to whip me. Don't tell me that God actually cares about me enjoying things. That just feels too soft. It just feels weird. The truth is, though, that word there, enjoy, is also translated pleasure. Now, what are you going to do with that? All right? How can we possibly wrestle with the fact that God cares about our pleasure? And you say, no, no, it can't possibly be. Now, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, think about this. All right, think about this. When God made Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden, beautiful things to look at, with food to eat that was incredible, delicious, I'm sure, with work that was satisfying, and he didn't even tell them clothes were a thing. All right? All right? Adam and Eve didn't even know pants existed until they sinned. 
All right? So don't tell me God doesn't care about us enjoying things and pleasure. God clearly cares all throughout the scriptures about the way we enjoy life. So that's why Paul goes on and says this. He says, richly provides us everything. Richly, abundantly, he says, provides us everything to enjoy. Everything to enjoy. I wonder, have you ever considered the fact that everything you have is a gift from God? Literally everything in your life is a gift from God. That's what the scriptures tell us. That all that I have, all that I own, all that I see on a day-to-day basis is a gift from God. Everything comes from God. And that's why we can be thankful both for the, the air that we breathe and also for the air in our tires. Right? We can be thankful for the warmth of sunshine and for heat in our house. We can, thank, we can be thankful for access to drinking water and also just having friends to tube down the river with. Everything comes from God. So the question that we're forced to wrestle with as we begin to build this life is what do we do with the everything that God has provided? All right? What do we do? Because that's the question that we've got to begin to answer. Is Mike, I've got X amount of dollars in my bank account. I've got X amount of time I can spend in margin. How do I spend it in a way that God would have me? It's the question that Paul wants to help us answer. And in the, in the New Testament, wherever it's talked about God providing, when it comes to stuff and with what we're supposed to do with it, there's always two different contexts that, that Paul gives us, all right? And the first is that of a manager or a steward. So God has given us stuff that he's asking us to manage or steward. He writes in, in 1 Corinthians 4.2, he says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust, which literally means steward, must prove faithful. And that term steward here means like house manager. It's somebody who manages the affairs of someone else. And so he's giving us a picture there that we are to manage the stuff that God has given us in such a way that it's not ours. And some of us know what this is like. Some of us manage other people's money for a living or perhaps at your job you've been given a budget and you're asked to spend money within that budget. And what you know is that your job as a manager or a steward is to spend the money or the resources or the time, whatever it is, in a way that the person wants you to. You don't have complete freedom just to do it however you want it, right? We understand that. We understand being a steward of other people's things means we can't just do whatever we want. And so Paul then tells us what this looks like as a steward. He instructs us this. He says, Do good, be rich in good work, generous and ready to share. What Paul's talking about here is advancing the kingdom with the resources that God has provided us. And so the question that you have to continuously be asking is, am I spending my money, my time, my calendar, am I doing so in such a way that if God was setting those things for me, he'd be doing it in the same exact way? And so this is a mindset that Paul wants to adopt this morning as we talk about enjoying the ride. He says the first thing you need to know is that everything comes from God, and as a result, you're tasked with spending all of it the way he would want you to spend it. And so each and every single one of us has been given a finite amount of all of that. And so the first lens that we need to look through our stuff, 
with, our life with, is that of stewardship. But honestly, this is where many of us get stuck. Many of us get stuck here because we don't know that there's a second context that Paul wants us to look through, that God would have us be looking through. So we get trapped in this legalistic mindset that thinks anytime we spend money on things that seem frivolous, we can't possibly be in God's will. And so we get trapped into thinking that this is the most they're having. So you talk about enjoying life, and many of us think, I would feel guilty if I enjoyed life. I would feel guilty if I actually took time to do the things that I love. Yeah, I love hiking, but I could use that time for other things because the gospel needs to advance. And yet there's a second lens that Paul wants us to look through. And it's this. God is my Father. There's one thing that I want you to catch this morning. It's to lay hold of the reality that God looks at you with the affection of a father. God looks down on you like the son or the daughter of God that you are. And I wonder if you've considered that. It's reflecting on how, think about for a parent. What is the absolute best way that a child can honor the gift that you've been given them? It's the deep enjoyment of that gift, isn't it? The best way to honor the gift is to to deeply enjoy it. So imagine you've been looking forward to giving your child a present. You're excited and they unwrap it and they open it. And imagine if they were to say to you, no, 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 I, I can't accept this, Dad. This is too much. Dad, this money could be used to, uh, to, to, to be given away. What about the folks downtown who need to eat? I can't possibly accept this. And the heart of a parent is like, no, no, no. No, I've given you this gift. Yeah, we'll take care of that. And I set aside money for that as well. But this is for you. This is meant for you and for your joy. Nothing brings a bigger smile to the face of a parent than the deep enjoyment of a gift that a child that you've given them. You know, a few months ago, I, I, uh, I bought a swing set for my backyard, and, and we uh, had our second one on the way, and so I really wanted something just for my wife to do with our, our two-year-old little girl. And so I was looking for a while and ended up buying one on Craigslist. And so I go to Torrington, and, and we disassemble it in this guy's backyard, and I load it up, and I bring six friends or so to help move it, guys here in the church. And, and all the while, as we're moving this 300-pound swing set, a little girl's sitting there, and she's just watching us. And her eyes are gleaming. And she's got a big smile on her face. And all the while, she's just going, swing set. Swing set. And she's cheering us on. Go, Daddy! And for weeks after this, she's telling every person she sees, she walks up to them and just goes, my daddy bought me a swing set. My daddy bought me a swing set. And every single day, we're playing on it. And as a dad... It's $500, all right? I'll just tell you that. Could that $500 have gone somewhere else? Maybe. But as a parent, I spent that money on her for her deep enjoyment, and there's nothing that brings me more joy than seeing her fully take advantage of it, enjoying it. And so the second lens that we've got to look through is that of sonship. That God is our Father. And for some of us this morning, it's a radical thought that God cares about you actually enjoying life. And so you ask me, you say, Mike, I I don't really understand because you've kind of said two things that seem to go against one another. 
Am I supposed to build a life and construct a life which is meant to see God is asking me to steward his things? Or am I meant to build a life in which God is saying, enjoy what I've given you? And the answer is, it's both. It's both. We talk often about just time with God. This is why time with God matters. Because I can't answer for you what this exactly looks like. You've got to wrestle with this. You sit down with your monthly budget and you say, God, how do you want me to spend this? And then honestly, after you've sensed that, and you say, God, is it okay for me to take my wife out to dinner? And you sense just a yes. And you go out to dinner and you enjoy it. And you let that lead you to gratefulness that God would give that to you. See, the problem is, if you only look through the first lens, you think, God couldn't possibly be okay with me buying steak instead of ramen noodles. Because that money could have gone somewhere else. And we get trapped in this legalistic mindset where we never enjoy the things God has wired us to enjoy. But if you only look through the second lens, then... You never see that God is calling you to sacrifice for the good of a kingdom. And so we begin to just live this self-indulgent lifestyle where everything I've been given is meant to be for me. And that's wrong too. And so God is saying, no, no, no. You've got to look through both you're managing the stuff I've given you and enjoying the things that I've given you. All right. So you say, Mike, that's, that's great. That's lovely theology. What do I actually do with that? What does it look like for us as a church to begin to embody this distinctive? What are we trying to get across when we say we enjoy the ride? Honestly, this impacts every single thing we do. As a church, as a staff. As a staff, we ask our people to Sabbath every single week, to take 24 hours to pull away from work, to pull away from things that are stressful and difficult in order to delight in God. And we've talked a lot about this as a church, of, of pause, pray, and play as a model for delighting in God every single week. And you know what? We go so far as to every single month, our staff members fill out an accountability form. And one of the questions on that accountability form is, did I take a Sabbath every single week this month. And when that form comes back to my desk and the answer is no, and I go and check in on them and say, why wouldn't we Sabbath, right? What's going on that's keeping you from pursuing this rhythm that God has called you to? One author writes about it this way in the issue of, of just time and Sabbath. He says, there are daily, weekly, quarterly, and yearly rhythms that God wants to build into our calendars. Daily, he wants us to spend time with him. Weekly, he wants us to pull back and enjoy a full Sabbath. Quarterly, maybe you just take a day to retreat and, and get away from everything. And then annually, this author says for himself, I go away on vacation for a week or two. Because I want to adopt this model that says, I need to step away. See, our calendars are for us a declaration of our hope in God. Because it's very difficult to enjoy the ride when I don't really trust him. It's very difficult to enjoy what he's calling me to enjoy when I don't really know what tomorrow might bring. And yet, I pull back and I obey on a weekly basis and I Sabbath or whatever other things you might be in order to say, God, I trust you. In our community groups, we take time every single week to study the scriptures, to ask hard questions about how do we apply this to our lives. 
We take time to serve together. Many just serve the most needy and vulnerable here in our cities. And they'll do that on a Saturday morning. And then you know what? They play kickball, too. They go out to dinner together. Because they're trying to see this balance between going hard after the things of God while also enjoying things along the way. It means that as our church, we're going to work incredibly hard to see the gospel advance here in our region. We're going to pray, and we're going to pioneer, and we're going to contend. And all the while, we're going to value our connection with him more than our ministry for him. And we're not going to lose the heart of God in the middle of working for him. We're not going to stop enjoying him because we're so busy working for him. You know, it's this distinctive that in a lot of ways is the glue that holds the other ones together, right? So, so we talk about a life in which leaders serve. We talk about a life in which we knock on heaven's door asking him to bring the perfection of the kingdom to here. Asking him to bring the freedom from addiction here. Asking him to bring salvation here. So we, we're knocking on heaven asking him to do that. We're pioneering new ground. We're asking God to do a work here in our region that hasn't been done in quite some time. And yet, all along the way, take time to stop and pause and reflect and enjoy the ride. You know, as I got to know Mary over the couple of years that I worked for this company, it came out eventually that she was a lover of Jesus. So when I began to ask her about these things, I said, Mary, how are you so happy and so content? And she just had these really simple answers. She wasn't a theologian. She just said, I've got everything I need. I have Jesus. And so because of that, I'm not worried about what's going to happen because God's going to take care of me. And I know that I'm a beloved daughter in Him. And so out of that, She developed this sweet, beautiful life of rest and contentment that wasn't built on her circumstances or her surroundings, but was built first and foremost on who she is in God. And so she stayed true to valuing that connection. Paul closes our text this morning in saying this. He says, why? Why do we do this, right? And he answers it. That they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is life? Jesus tells us in 10.10. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What Paul has shown us today is that a full life is lived between the pillars of stewardship and sonship. That enjoying the ride is all about running for those two things at the same time. Yes, I'm stewarding the things of God, and yes, I'm enjoying being a son. A full life is lived between the pillars of stewardship and sonship. In Jesus' name, ours is not going to be a church where families die on the altar of ministry. Because yes, we're going to work hard. Yes, we're going to go after those things. But we are going to stay connected to him and to one another. How do we do that? By enjoying the ride. By cultivating a spirit of remembrance and gratitude and celebration. Even sometimes as we sweat next to one another, setting up chairs, call street music hall, or wherever else we might be. We stop and we remember who God is and all that he's done. And so I just imagine this, this tribe of people 
who are not just here for the the five-year haul and just say, you know, I'm going to work really hard for five years and then flame out, but actually understand what does it look like to build a rhythm and a pace to life where I'm working extremely hard for the things of God, and yet I'm doing it in such a way that I can maintain it for the next 40 years. That God would put inside each of us a picture of what the end of our lives would look like so that we begin to move towards that day with passion, and we cross that finish line still in love with Him, seeing incredible things done in the years behind us. What would it look like to be a church that values delighting in Him more than it does just working for Him, while at the same time working very hard to see the gospel advance? Today at every campus, we're going to take a moment and we're going to celebrate communion together. And so at the locations, the campus pastors will be leading you through how to do that in just a few moments. Here in New Haven, we're going to have some members here at the front and in the back, and the servant teams uh, can begin to get into position, and uh, they'll dismiss you by row. But as we do so, we're doing so reminding ourselves that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And when his body is broken for us, I know that I matter. As his blood is shed for me, I know that if God was willing to go to that length, then he will take care of me as well. That I take these things that are are keeping me from truly enjoying all that he's put in front of me, and I just give them to him. And I say, God, take my fear. God, take my worry, my anxiety. I give it back to you. And we thank him and remind ourselves once more, of the power of the cross. And so, Jesus, we come before you just confessing we don't know how to do this well. God, we swing to one pendulum or the other. God, would you show us how just to to work that middle ground of enjoying the ride while pursuing you hard, while working to see our lives make a difference for eternity, God. Give us passion and wisdom and insight to walk that line well because we long to come to a day when we see you face to face and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, God. And embracing this lifestyle is your key to seeing that become a reality. So would you help us? We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We stand together.